Amen and amen. God is good. And all the time. So good. Okay. Hallelujah. There we go. Much better. <laughs> Amen. Didn't the guys and the family have a good time yesterday? Yeah. yeah. Amen. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we had a um, expository preaching workshop with uh, Pastor Israel, and um, we just uh, had an incredible time of learning. You saw the school desks out here in the main hall. We were back to school, back to reality. <laughs> uh, so it's just an awesome time learning and, and growing. I said to one of the guys, yeah, it's probably going to be the most difficult thing preaching after an expository workshop, you know, I'm preaching. <laughs> uh, but uh, in everything, we're learning and growing. Yeah. Even as preachers and teachers, we're learning and we're growing. Uh, so uh, I think uh, that's the nature of being a preacher and a teacher of the word is that you should aspire to be the first among students. Yes. Amen. Yeah. Uh, so uh, just a warm welcome to everyone. Um, all our friends, family and visitors, we're still in the book of, of Ecclesiastes. Uh, have you been reading the book of Ecclesiastes? Uh, I'm not getting any positive feedback here, family. Have you been reading the book of Ecclesiastes? Amen. Thank you, Marlon. Hey to the Bennett family there in the corner. Good to see you guys. Uh, hey, it's also good to hear. Uh, the Lord has come through for you. It was just on Sunday we had a conversation. Lo and behold, uh, He is the Lord of the breakthrough. Yes. And uh, the Lord is going to come through for your home, for your family, uh, like He has countless of times. It's good to see Auntie Ingrid back in the house. Amen. Uh, mighty warrior of the kingdom of God. And uh, turn with me, would you please, to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, uh, like Pastor Israel says, we are going to chain ourselves to the text. Yeah. We're going to be prisoners of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Okay? And I'm just going to quickly recap, review where we are. This is the third um, part message in the series of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Grenville, um, I'm thinking we pause on chapter 5. We'll pick up chapter 5 uh, from chapter 5 probably in a few months. Um, and we have Mother's Day approaching. Uh, Grenville will be ministering the word next week. I'll give you a prelude. <laughs> uh, Sarisha's looking like uh, our anniversary celebrations are still going on. <laughs> so you know when, you, uh, when you're preaching and you're preparing the word, uh, uh, sleep and time under the covers are, are very few. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, when you're there, please give me an amen. amen. Title of our message this morning is Watch Your Step. You know, for you old school gangsters, uh, you know, when you so uh, threaten your, uh, your opponent, you say, watch your step. <laughs> Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. How brookie. 
is competing with me this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and we're reading from verse 1. The Bible says in the New King James translation, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to repay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. Nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity. But fear God. Amen. But fear God. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to come before your throne. We ask that, Lord, that you'll anoint our ears like you did those lepers in the tabernacle of Moses in the sanctuary. Anoint our ears that we may hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the church, what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to us this morning. Anoint, Lord, this time as we fellowship uh, in your presence around your word. And I pray, God, Lord, that you'd make our hearts fertile soil for the incorruptible seed of your word. I pray, Lord, that even as I'll speak, you'll anoint my lips of clay to speak, as thus saith the Lord, to speak as an oracle of God. I pray, Lord, even as I speak, I disappear and you would appear and you will be glorified in my body, my mind, speak through my, my mouth and my mind in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody says, Amen and Amen. Uh, the title of our message is Watch Your Step. A quick review over last week and previous weeks. Uh, as you know, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book of two voices. And we heard Pastor Israel speak about this yesterday. You've, you've got to be discerning and analytical enough to know when there are more than two voices or more than one voice speaking in scripture and when you open up the book of Ecclesiastes you have the author who is introducing the wise sage he's introducing the teacher or the preacher and we explained last week that the translation the English translation uh, for the Hebrew term Kohelet is the terms preacher and teacher but they don't do justice because a Kohelet was a Middle Eastern sage, a wise sage who specialized in literature and wisdom. A sage who specialized in, in proverbs and wise things. And he was a philosopher of life. And so in chapter 1 verse 1, we find the author adopting the persona of the Kohelet, of the wise sage. And he says, the words of the preacher, the Kohalath. 
the teacher, the wise sage, son of David, king of Jerusalem. And it's a no-brainer reading through the book of Ecclesiastes that the author is undoubtedly King Solomon. It just reeks of him from chapter 1 to chapter 12. You get the sense that this is Solomon speaking uh, because even though, you know, commentators and theologians debate the authorship and the time of the writing of Ecclesiastes, when you read certain phrases like uh, him referring to himself as the king of Israel, there were only three kings over a united Israel. It was Saul, David, and Solomon. Thereafter, the kingdom was split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, which would be known as Israel and Judah. And so, undoubtedly, the author is Solomon. And Solomon adopts the persona of Kohala to give us a perspective of life under the sun. And we spoke about life under the sun uh, last week. And so, the author, you'll find himself introduced in chapter 1. Uh, where he, well, he himself introduces the Kohelet, the wise says, the preacher and teacher. And then towards the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 12, we have the author again introducing himself, but defending the wisdom of the Kohelet. And so between the prologue and the epilogue, we have the Kohelet framing the book. Not, sorry, not the Kohelet, the author framing the entire book of Ecclesiastes. He speaks in the beginning and he speaks at the end. The outer frame of Ecclesiastes you will see the author's voice. In between in the monologue you will find the voice of the Kohalat that Solomon adopts, the persona that he adopts. And last week we said that the purpose of Ecclesiastes um, is to dismantle our false illusions of life and its pleasures. And the author and the Kohalat is telling us that you can pursue all the pleasures of this life and everything that life has to offer you, but you will still come up short and unfulfilled because God has set in our hearts eternity. And Jesus put it in one sense. He says, what does a profit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his soul? purpose of Ecclesiastes is also to remind us that life is short and that death is inescapable, that eternity is real and that judgment is looming. And lastly, the purpose of Ecclesiastes is also to teach us the fundamental truth about wisdom because Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom. It falls in the category of genre which is is referred to as wisdom literature. And so the underlying theme of every book of wisdom is, is wisdom. They're trying to communicate to us wisdom. And the book of Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us the fundamental truth about wisdom, that, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that if you want wisdom, it starts with a reverential fear for the Lord. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And last week we explained that there's a simple way to look at the structure of the book of Ecclesiastes. From chapter 1 verses 1 to 11 you have the prologue. From chapters 112 to chapter 12 verse 8 you have a long monologue in where the Kohalat is on the quest for the meaning of life. And lastly from chapter 12 verses 8 to 14 we have the epilogue, the closing, final, concluding thoughts 
of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you miss the message of the epilogue, if you miss, miss the closing message of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, you miss the purpose of the book. And he concludes that he's summarized the main purpose for life as being, being fearfully postured before God and obeying his commandments. And he sums everything up by saying that the whole sum of man and purpose of man is to fear God. And that was the purpose as to why Solomon set pen to paper to remind us that the purpose of life is to fear God and obey his commandments. We also said last week that a key to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes is understanding the phrases and statements that are constantly repeated over and over and over again. And there's a reason why repetition is used is to impress upon you the meaning and the message that the author is trying to convey. And so in the prologue, Solomon lays down key phrases and statements that summarize his message. In verse uh, chapter 1, verses 2, he says, Vanity of vanities, that's the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew word which, mean, which is hevel, uh, which means wind, uh, uh, mist, a vapor, something you can't grab hold of, something that's there, ethereal, but it's not tangible. He says, Vanity of vanity, uh, says the Kohelet. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. If you have an NIV translation or NIT, it will read meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And we spoke last week about how this, this is a Hebrew superlative, uh, like the phrase King of Kings or, or Lord of Lords or Song of Songs. You know, uh, so when, when the Bible speaks of Jesus being the King of Kings, it means that he is the greatest King of all. When it speaks of the Song of Songs, it means this is the greatest song of all. Holy of Holies, that was the most holy place in the sanctuary and on the planet. And so when, when the Kohelet is repeating this phrase, vanity of vanities, he's saying this is the most utterly meaningless thing of all. And he repeats this in a classical Hebrew literary fashion. He refers to life being fleeting and temporary and that our existence is fleeting and like a vapor. And James alludes to this. Remember when we covered the series of James, James says, but what is your life? It's but a vapor that appears and then disappears. And it's with that concept of life in mind that Solomon is speaking and telling us that life is brief and short and fleeting and your time will appear like a vapor and then soon disappear. In chapter 1 verse 3, again he repeats, uh, he lays down a phrase and statement that he repeats constantly throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? And that phrase, under the sun, is repeated over 29 times in just 12 chapters. He speaks about life under the sun. That's because the Kohelet has taken a perspective of life that is philosophical, not theological. He's not looking at life from a theological perspective and as though he was this radical, born-again Christian. No, he's looking at life just from a base uh, point of view 
and just looking at it almost in a pessimistic view he's not considering the god who is above the sun that a god who is above in the heavens no he's looking at life just from a mere point of of being a humanist and secularist who knows something about god but but he's just interpreting all of life's happenings and complexities and, and inconsistencies from a humanistic point of view so whenever you see the phrase under the sun you must know that this is how he's viewing life a life without god and so he repeats this phrase over and over and over again perhaps the closest allusion we have to the theme of ecclesiastes is found in romans 8 if you can turn there with me romans 8 and we read from verses uh, from verses 18 Romans 8 and we'll read from verses 18 when you did please give me an amen. Amen. amen and Paul writes saying from verse 18 for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us for the earnest expectation of creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility everybody say futility futility, futility is the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word hevel which means meaningless and vanity and frustration so when when Paul's writing here in verse 20, he's, he's saying that creation was subjected into meaninglessness, into vanity, into futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself is all, will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God verse 22 for we know that the whole of creation groans and labors with birth pangs together up until now and so Paul is saying that creation the whole of creation has been subjected into into futility why was creation subjected into futility because the world was subjected under a curse do you understand the Biblical narrative uh, of Genesis chapter 3 you'll understand that the world was subjected in, under a curse and into futility because and as a result of original sin when Adam and Eve sinned the Bible says that God cursed the ground God cursed creation itself and so Paul picks up along the same theme and Paul is saying yes the world was subjected into futility yes the world was subjected into meaninglessness but by him who also subjected it in hope in other words the world can now hope in spite of it being under a curse and despite it being a fallen world there is a hope that now creation has and that the whole of creation now is eagerly awaiting for the revelation of the sons of God and why do we have this hope because Christ is the hope of glory and he's now given meaning to creation he's given meaning to to existence and so while Kohelet and Solomon in Ecclesiastes 
looks at the world under the sun in its fallen state with all its meaninglessness and vanity, Christ has now entered the world and given us hope because he is the hope of glory and he gives hope to the hopeless. And so Christ has now given us meaning to this life. And a step closer to Jesus is a step closer to fulfillment and meaningless. And a step away from Christ is a step away from fulfillment and meaningfulness. Because he is the hope of glory and he is the hope of creation. And so as we approach chapter 5, we have an unusual shift in the tone of Ecclesiastes. Firstly, from chapters 1 to chapter 4, we saw the author write in a self-reflective way and in, a, in, and in an autobiographical style. He addresses himself constantly from chapter 1 to chapter 2. He said, I see, I said to myself, I said to myself. He says that repeatedly. He's writing in a self-reflective tone. He's having a conversation with himself. But when he gets to chapter 5, something changes and something shifts. He adopts a more instructive tone. And now for the first time, the author is addressing his audience directly. And for the first time, we see him give a high series of instructions. In just seven verses, he gives instructions around three specific acts of devotion that's found in the Temple of Solomon. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 5, he, he deals with sacrifices. Um, secondly, from verses 2 to, to 3, he deals with how we pray. And then from verses 4 to 7, he deals with the issue and topic of vows and making promises to God. Just in these seven verses, there are ten verb forms and imperative forces. In just seven verses, he crams up this, this list of instructions. Also, you'll note that when we get to chapter 5, there's not just a change in, in tone, but there's a change in view. Because all this time and previously he was, he was looking at, at the world in a philosophical way. But when we get to chapter, chapter 5, he takes on a more theological view. And he deals with the view of, of who God is above the sun. He's not looking at life under the sun. He's looking at life almost above the sun. And he addresses the subject of God and how we worship God. And the reason why this, this is so is because scholars tell us that chapter 5 verses 1 to 7 is the literary centerpiece of Ecclesiastes. This was the Hebrew style of writing. If you remember when we did the, the series of Daniel, uh, Daniel also consisted of, I think it was 12, 12 chapters, but chapter 7 was the centerpiece of Daniel's entire letter and prophecy. The first half dealt with, with the narratives uh, and the second half dealt with the prophecies. But chapter 7 was a theological centerpiece of the book of Daniel. And chapter 7 was where Daniel introduced to us the first time the concept of the Son of Man. And Solomon is doing the exact same thing in chapter 5 he, he places a theological centerpiece in the middle of the book of Ecclesiastes and he's looking at, at, at life now from a theological point of view. 
Now remember that the main theme in Ecclesiastes is that the world is filled with meaninglessness in a fallen world and without God. So in chapter 1, he introduces to us this concept of, of meaninglessness and the fleeting nature of our human existence and everything we do under the sun uh, makes no point because we're going to die anyway, just like the animals. And in chapter 2 to 4, he exposes again the meaninglessness of life as someone who's pursued woman, as someone who's pursued wealth and popularity and fame. He still exposes the fact that even with all these pursuits and pleasures and success and, and notoriety, there, there's still a dead end. But then when we get to chapter, chapter 5, he exposes another kind of meaninglessness. He now takes his focus and he turns it to the worshipper. And he asks the question, can we find meaning in worship? And in not so many words, he's telling us that yes, we can find meaninglessness in worship if we adopt the wrong approach yeah. Yeah. if we adopt the wrong attitude mm. if we adopt the incorrect the wrong way of behaving he says we can come up short in our devotion to God and so he gives us a strong caution in chapter 5 and the caution of scripture is always twofold <coughs> and always remember this is that in the Torah and Ten Commandments, there was always a call to serve the right God. We have that in the first two commandments. You shall serve the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Thou shalt make no other graven images. The Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, he is the true God. And we saw throughout the history of Israel how they struggled to serve the right God. But when we approach the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 5, the Kohelet is telling us that you can serve the right God and not serve Him in the right way. And that's the second caution of Scripture. Yes, you can serve the right God, but are you serving Him in the right way? And He's warning us, He's saying, serving the right God is not the end all. You have to serve him in the right way. You cannot have the wrong approach. Yeah. Because if you have a wrong approach, he says there are costly consequences to it. Yeah. And so it would appear that when we read verses 1, you can all turn there again with me. When we read verses 1 of chapter 5, it says, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they do evil. It would appear that he's indirectly saying to us that going to the house of the Lord is not synonymous with being on right terms with God. Yeah. That just because you attend the house of God and you make your pilgrimage to the temple, that's not the grounds to justify you. Yeah. 
Just as sitting in McDonald's don't make you a hamburger, and just as sitting in the garage don't make you a car, going to church does not make you a believer. So it's possible to be a faithful member and attendee in the house of God and still have an incorrect posture before God. And Solomon is warning us, he's saying there's a danger when we fall into this kind of attitude. There's a danger when we fall into this kind of formalism. There's a danger when we approach God this casually. And in chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, we see that Solomon introduces us to the theme of walking and the idea of walking prudently before God, watching your step, guarding your step as you go into the house of God. And then at the end of verse, of verse 7, he tells us to fear God. So he opens up with the theme and idea of fearing God and he closes off his thought with the idea and notion of fearing God. And that's how the Hebrews wrote uh, in ancient times. They would open up with the theme and close with the theme. And so he begins with the advice that when you go to the house of God, guard your steps when you come into his presence in verse 1. And verse 7 he says, fear God. And in between that bracket and frame, he sandwiches a series of instructions in verse 2, 4, and 6. He says, do not be hasty with your mouth. Do not let your heart be rushed. Do not delay to repay your vows. Do not permit your mouth to, to speak and give occasion to the flesh. Do not say, he crams all these, these imperatives and instructions on how we approach what not to do. And so in verse 1, we're told to fear God in verse 2. We're told to watch our words. Then we have a proverb in verse 3. Then in verse 6, he says again, watch your words in not so many words. And in verse 7, he gives another pro proverb. And he closes off with, with the first idea in verse 7. He says, but fear God. So when we look at verse 1, it's easy to miss the nuance here when he says watch your steps when you go to the house of God because there's a literal and a figurative meaning to this <coughs> um, if Layla can get ready for me with the projector I want to I show you something I want to show you what's literally pictured here when Solomon says guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord Any moment now. <laughs> Any moment now. <laughs> there we go. Are you all starting to see that? Yeah. I wish I had my pointer here, but I'm going to use my finger. No, no, it's fine. But can you see the irregular steps? This was 
the southern steps leading to the temple to the house of God the Jewish people the first step was about 12 inches which is roughly about maybe 30 centimeters and the second step was about 80 centimeters 76 centimeters so they built these steps irregular all the way up to the temple of God now they found this discovery in 1976 where they unearthed these steps leading to the temple and the dimensions of the steps were not designed like this accidentally it was done with intention you can put that off thank you the reason why they designed the steps leading to the temple was because it forced the worshipper to walk up slowly it forced the worshipper to watch their steps you couldn't keep a fast pace walking up these stairs or you couldn't run up these stairs you'd even find it difficult to have a social interaction while walking up these steps the design of the steps was intentional and was meant to slow you down because it conveyed a message to the worshiper that when you come into the presence of the of, of god and when you come into the house of god you come contemplative you come thoughtful you come slowly you come meditatively you come guarding your steps you pay careful attention to each step this encouraged every worshiper not to be distracted by by chitter and chatter but when you come into the presence of god you do some introspection now the figurative meaning behind this is that wherever you see feet or steps or walk in the scripture it is a graphical symbol of our conduct and behavior and so when the scripture says guard your steps or watch your steps when you come to the house of god uh, in essence the, the author is saying watch your conduct and behavior when you come into the presence of god proverbs 1 verse 15 to 16 says my son do not walk in the way with them keep your foot from their path for their feet run to do evil and they make haste to shed blood in other words watch your behavior keep your behavior away don't get entangled with the behavior of others because bad company corrupts good manners Galatians 5 verse 16 Paul says walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh in other words when he says walk in the spirit he says conduct yourself in the spirit you behave in the spirit in Ephesians 5 verse 15 uh, Paul again writes and he says see then that you walk circumspectly not as fools but as wise redeeming the time because the days are even in other words see that you behave wisely you you conduct yourself circumspectly and so we gather from verse 1 that Solomon is not just concerned with our conduct in worship but he's he's concerned with our overall lifestyles and behavior and he's done a whole lot to tell us about all the inconsistencies of life and now he comes to chapter 5 
and he says there's another inconsistency the way the people of God behave in the house of God and in the presence of God there must be no disparity between our lip service and our life service there must be no irregularity between how we behave and how we worship your conduct must correspond with your confession there must be an the right correct earthly response to a heavenly God and so he says walk prudently watch your step when you come into the house of God this phrase house of God is important to understand because it's not referring to a synagogue it's referring to the actual temple of Solomon it appears 50 times in scripture 46 times it's referenced in the old testament and four times it's referenced in the new testament so it's a reference to solomon's temple and how we know this is because the term sacrifice in verse 1 literally refers to the sacrificing of animals and this was only done in the temple of solomon and so when solomon's temple was first built the Ark of the Covenant dwelt inside of it and the presence of God, the literal presence of God dwelt in the Temple of Solomon. This was built over 400 years ago and when we did the Daniel series we, we, we mentioned how in about 563 BC the Temple of Solomon was destroyed and then rebuilt and then de destroyed again. But it took 183,000 men to build the Temple of Solomon. Can you imagine that? 183,000 men over a seven year period to build the temple of Solomon. It was a glorious temple, beautiful temple. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, we told that on the day that the temple was dedicated, the Shekinah glory of God came and filled the temple. To such a place, the presence of God was so strong when they dedicated the temple that the priests couldn't minister before the Lord. They all just lay prostrate. Because the presence of God was so heavy and tangible. And so in the Old Testament period, we have this, this concept of the temple being the place where God dwelt in a very peculiar way. And so you wouldn't approach the temple in a casual way. Just like you wouldn't approach a king of a monarchy in a casual way, you wouldn't approach the temple and the presence of God in a casual way. Because if you read Leviticus 10, you'll see how God judged Aaron's sons. God judged Aaron's sons who offered up strange fire on, on, on the altar of incense. And the Bible says God, a fire came before, before them and consumed them. And then we read about King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. The Bible says he tried to offer incense. He wasn't a priest. It was only the duty of priests to offer, offer incense. And, and so what the, what the king does is he oversteps his boundaries. And, and there's 10 priests that try to stop the king. And he pursues anyway and he sacrifices as though he was a priest. And the Bible says that God struck him with leprosy. And you're all familiar with the story of Uzzah. As David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant uh, from the house of Obed-Edom, they hit a rock on the road, and the Ark of the Covenant is about to fall, and Uzzah tries to stop it from falling, and God strikes him dead. 
And David got upset with the Lord. But then David went to see back in, in the scriptures and in the protocols, how is the presence of God to be managed? And how is the presence of God to be transported? And they had put the Ark of the Covenant on, all, on a new donkey cart. But the requirement of the Word of God was that the Ark of the Covenant rests on the shoulders of the Levitical priests. And that's why God struck Uzzah down is because they took a casual approach to the presence of God. And you say, preacher, but that's, that's Old Testament. But if you turn in the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, you have a scenario where Ananias and Sapphira, yeah. Ananias and Sapphira hold back a portion of money that they got from the land they sold that was their money. We're not told how much. But the move of God was back then that, you know, you sold your land and you gave the funds to the apostles. You know, and they distributed it to the poor because there was a famine that struck in the land. And so they held back a portion of their own money. And when the Holy Spirit revealed it to Peter, he approached them and said that you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And the Lord will have your lives. And both husband and wife dropped dead in church. <laughs> You say again, but that's not the teaching of, of the New Testament. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and, and verse 30. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. And he's saying, when we, have, when we have communion, when you guys are having communion, you treat the communion table so casually. He says, you, some of you, because... They don't have they didn't have communion like we have communion. We have communion, you know, with the oh my name, how many, how many those wafers, you know, we have those wafers, and we put the wafers, and we the small cups, and we drink those small cups. Amen. That's how we have communion. But but back then communion was a meal. You'd sit around a table and you'd literally have a full loaf of Albany bread, and you'd have the fruit of the vine. You know, it was a proper meal. And Paul said, you're conducting yourself so irreverently. This is the table. You come and you're being gluttons. Some of you are not even feasting. You take somebody else's share. That's why I warn the kids, they don't just uh, run off the service to the refreshment table and disregard the senior folk. <laughs> so I'm just kidding. But Paul warns them, he says, in verse 30 of chapter 11 of Corinthians, he says, many of you, this is the reason why many of you have fallen sick and even fallen asleep. Yeah. And what it means is, this is the reason why many of you have fallen sick and many of you have died because you have not discerned the body of Christ. He says, you come around the Lord's Supper Something that, that means so much in our faith. In our, it, it's a sacred moment. When we come around this moment, you're treating it casually like it's your dinner table at home. Yeah. And as a result, you have invited the discipline of God. And Paul lets us know how God disciplines. He says, yeah, I've sent sickness. He, he sent sickness and death. He's allowed sickness and death 
because we had an irreverent and casual approach to the presence and people of God. And uh, for those of you who are from Peter Maritzburg here, yeah, I uh, must go back, why laughing, but now, I must go back. Um, but there was a preacher set on his ministry uh, a few times. His name was uh, Pastor Leon Noel. He subsequently passed away. Uh, Laron's uh, laughing there. It's like he got a few hidings from Pastor Leo. <laughs> but Pastor Leo was a serious kind of preachers. You know, old school, you know. A bit archaic. You weren't allowed to come into a meeting with all you ladies with your hair exposed. You know, you must have head covering and stuff, you know. Or else he points you out <laughs> in the meeting. <laughs> you don't have your Bible there. You, the spotlight's on you, you know. Uh, but he had a kind of approach to ministry and there was a couple in his church and the husband was physically abusing the wife and this kept the woman out of out of church and so the news got to him the news got to him hey um, uh, someone says not coming to church because of ABCD and his heart was broken and he, and he said Lord Give me a word, prophetic word for this family. And he prayed and he prayed earnestly. And the Lord spoke to him and said, I will give you the word when you get to, the, to his doorstep and that home's doorstep. And when the door opens, I'll give you the word. And so he got to the home and he knocked on the door. The husband opened and lo and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And the Lord spoke to Pastor Leo and said, tell this man exactly these words. And he said to the man, what must I preach at your funeral? The Lord says, if you don't repent, you will be buried. And what must I preach at your funeral? Ah, pastor, don't talk like that. Ah, pastor. A week from there, the man passed away. Because he failed to repent. There is a two-edged sword about the gospel. You know, there's two sides to the presence of God. If you approach the presence of God with the right heart and attitude and with fear and with reverence, you can experience joy from his presence. But if you approach God's presence and treat God very casually and without fear and reverence, there's another aspect to the presence of God. And you can invite the discipline and the chastening of the Lord. Because those whom he loves, he chastises. Amen. So in verse 1, Solomon tells us that when we come into the presence of God, we watch our steps. And he begins to break it down. He states, draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifices of fools. For they do not know what evil they do. In other words, they become so foolish where they are now self-deceived. And that's one of the worst kinds of deceptions you can have is where you fool yourself. You know, you start believing your own lies and your own stories and your own cons. So when Solomon says, and the Koala tells us, draw near to hear, the Hebrew word here has a double force for emphasis. It carries the meaning and nuance that you don't just listen. 
but you obey. So when he says draw near to hear, he's saying draw near to listen and obey. That's the type of listening he's trying to encourage from his, from, from, from his worshippers, from his audience. Is that you listen with the intention to obey. You don't listen to, to critique and just to know and to understand. You don't listen to find fault. You listen with the intention of obeying. Because the purpose of knowledge and the purpose of understanding is not knowledge and understanding in itself. It's obedience. And so he's implying that there must be an inseparable relationship between the word of God that you hear and the word of God that you obey. Listening and obeying must be two sides of the same coin. And you'll find this link as well uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the word for year in Hebrew is the word sama, the Hebrew word sama, which is also substituted for obey. So in the Old Testament, it's used and translated into listen, and at times it's translated into obey. In the New Testament, we have the Greek word akal, which also means to obey. Um, and then the word hupokal, which means to hear under. And so by the terms akal and hupokal, we understand that, that obedience is a derivative of hearing. And so the, in, the implication is that when God speaks, He expects you to obey. That hearing and obeying must be one and the same thing for us. And we find this relationship between hearing and listening and obedience in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, Jesus tells, tells a story, he says, And for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid his foundation on a rock. When the floods came, the torrent struck and the house could not be shaken because it was well built. But to the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice, I will liken him unto the man who builds his house without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck, that house collapsed and its destruction was complete. Hearing the word of God puts us in a place of being accountable to God to obey. Doesn't matter how powerful or how charismatic or how timely the, 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 the preacher is or the word is to the people. These words are unfulfilled if they fall on a deaf ear. You can have the greatest of preachers and teachers. And often as, as a congregation and as a listener, we, we find every excuse not to obey. And even Jesus found this, this appalling in, in the congregation he spoke to because he'd often appeal to their ears. He says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear, listen. He bemoaned the people's inability to hear and obey. And in Matthew 13 verse 15 he says, these people's ears have become hard of hearing and their eyes are even closed. 
and so in John chapter 17 verse 17 Jesus says we must have an ear to obey and a heart to do his will he said he who wills to do my will he wills to do my will will know concerning my teaching and doctrine in other words you've got to have a will and a heart to obey and if you have a heart to obey you will know concerning the truth this verse and statement in particular where solomon says draw near rather to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools is also an allusion to first samuel chapter 15 which solomon was probably aware of where samuel comes to a disobedient king saul who did not fully obey the commandment of the lord to kill the entire nation of the amalekites samuel comes up and still hears the bleating of the sheep and and he sees the king spared and he says these words the prophet says these words to the disobedient king he says has the lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as compared to obeying his voice behold it is better to obey than to sacrifice and to heed then the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as idolatry and iniquity and because you have rejected my word i have also rejected you from being king god desired from saul obedience and not his sacrifices his sacrifices were meaningless apart from obedience and Koalith is telling us and warning us don't make the sacrifice of fools be obedient and so C.S. Johnson tells a story of a, uh, an event that happened in his family he says uh, his son Michael was four years old um, came came to him uh, sobbing uncontrollably in the hallway and so he was so concerned that he kneeled down and he and he picked up his son uh, in his hands and said boy what's the matter what's the matter who hurt you what happened and so boy shook his head and turned to him and said dad mommy said a bad word to me and he thought to himself that that's not in the nature of mommy you know what bad word could mommy have said you know dad is thinking i've known mommy for 12 years she's hardly raised her voice towards this boy but c.s johnson daddy persisted and said boy please tell me what was the bad word that mommy used and once the boy stopped sobbing and crying he said mommy use the word obey <laughs> and he said ever since that incident he says he prays and he says father let that word never be a bad word for me obey as my son assumed obedience and obey must not be a bad word in our vocabulary and in our conduct yeah. and so 
Solomon is unraveling what it means to guard our steps when we go to the presence of God. First thing he says in verse 2, he says, Do not be rash with your mouth and let your heart utter hastily things before God. He's describing our human tendency to speak without thinking before God. Mm. He says, Don't let the labor of your lips preside over the travail of your heart. And I see this often in, in, in prayer meetings. Um, I don't know if you've been into you know, one of those crazy prayer meetings as, as I have been in quite a few, where people just get in and say, ah, da, 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 da. you know, just start speaking in tongues. Rabarula, rabarula, if you're a teacher, rabarula, 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 rabarula. <laughs> and they pace the floor like, hey, I'm fighting, like, God has a hearing aid. You see, don't, don't approach God like that. Especially in corporate meetings. Don't, don't want to be heard and, and pray these long travailing prayers and, and go on. He says, let your words be few. And Jesus kind of alludes to this in Matthew 6. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who stand in, in the synagogues to be seen. And, and he says, rather, when you pray, go to your room, shut the door, and pray in secret. For your Father who is in the secret place will, will reward you openly. Don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. <laughs> you know, some, some friends when they when they're praying they say, Lord Father God, uh, Lord, can you bless me, Father God, Lord Father God, Father God, Father God, Father God, Father God. When you approach God, He's giving us a tip and some advice on prayer. Speak to him as though he's in front of you. Have this mental picture of him in front of you or this great king in front of you. Imagine you speaking to your wife and you're saying, Bada, 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 Panis, Panis, can you bring the coffee, Panis, 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 There is a part in our culture in Africa where we reference names often, you know? Papa, Papa, you know? But he's saying, don't be excessive with unnecessary empty phrases or, you know? Approach him sincerely. Approach him with reverence and thoughtfully and contemplative. He says in verse 2, don't be rash with your mouth and don't let your heart utter anything hasty before heaven. For God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. This is not, a, he's not saying God's in heaven far away and God's distance. No, that's not what it means. When he says God is in heaven and you are on earth, let your words be few. What it means is that, is that his ways are not our ways. And we shouldn't treat him as though he's an earthling. Approach him because he's a God who dwells in this heavenly glorious abode. And respect him because he's otherworldly. He transcends our world. And he's not bound by time as we are bound by time. And in a culture uh, that we live in, we have developed this, this issue with authority. We even approach God more casually, you know. And, and sometimes, I guess it's our, our, sometimes the songs we sing that kind of, you know, encourage that. Like, like God's our buddy. Like, He's our friend and that's all He is. God is more than just a friend. God is the judge of all the earth. God is the creator 
of the universe you don't speak to him any old how you approach him God in your words you process your thoughts before you speak and in verse 3 he gives us a proverb and he says for a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by many words and according to Matthews this verse would best be read in this way quote as a dream is accompanied by many worries so a fool's speech comes with many words and Arjun said it this way that these two lines demonstrate this verse's parallel thought and structure when the terms much and many are used in both lines for example as dreams go hand in hand with many cares so does foolish talk with many words in other words you worry too much you dream bad dreams you speak too much you speak foolishness you have the risk of speaking fool foolishness with many cares you have nightmares with many words you can speak foolishness and in verse 4 he deals on to the last imperative and he says when you make a vow to God do not delay to repay it for he has no pleasure in fools that's an, it's quite a strong statement God has no pleasure in fools like there's nothing Connie can get out of a fool you know and he says pay what you have vowed better not to vow than to vow and not pay and so Solomon's speaking about the seriousness of words and he uses the, the, the method of vows because this was a common practice in, in worship in the temple. He says, we should be serious about making promises to God and vows to God. He, he, meant, he speaks a proverb twice in these seven verses. But the reason why he's emphasizing this is because he wants us to understand something about God. And it's something we've forgotten. That God doesn't take lightly to broken vows. And that a broken vow may incur a judgment or a discipline on our lives. And so Psalms 415 verse 4 says that one who, who makes a vow should swear to his own hurt to keep the vow in other words do everything in your power if you've made a vow to keep it and what's commonly overlooked uh, and, and what's probably one of the most unappreciated sins there is is the sin of a broken vow and we're seeing this over and over and over again in our culture promising things to God and not living up to it and how often have we done that those who honor God should be quick not to make a vow those who want to honor God will be serious to fulfill any vows broken those who honor God will regard broken vows as a sin that needs to be repented and confessed and so many of us have been in a situation where we said Lord if you heal me yeah. if you get me out of this hospital bed yeah. I'll serve you <laughs> and when he heals you you conveniently forget the promise mm -hmm. or when you say Lord 
if you come through for me, I'll quit alcohol. And God came through for you. And you forgot your vow. Lord, if you bless me with this increase on my salary, I'll give 20% to the local church. When God gives you the increase, you conveniently forget your promise. And Solomon is saying, be slow to make those promises. Because making vows and not fulfilling them is an unappreciated sin. You don't see it as a sin. But breaking promises is what incurs the judgment of God and the discipline of God on our lives. And that's why the wise sage is warning us, be slow with your words. And perhaps one of the most painful of all broken vows is the one we make before God in holy matrimony. We stand before the altar and we look in our lover's eyes and we say, until death do us part. We say in sickness and in health. And the moment your husband's in a wheelchair, he can't move his limbs, you run off and find another char you know, a, a Charlie Chaplin dude. <laughs> we say things like to have and to hold and to cherish. But then we allow a third party to enter the relationship. And we violate the marital vow before God. And Solomon is warning us, if you make a vow, you keep it, even to your own heart. And we're living in a culture where vows before God are made cheap. So Jesus warns us, don't swear by the altar. Don't, don't be quick to make vows. Mm. Think first before you speak. Because God holds you accountable for your words. When we stand before him in judgment, he will judge us for our motives. He will judge us for our works done in our mortal bodies. And he will judge us for every idle word. And the wise man is giving us some wise advice. Rather don't make that kind of commitment to God. Don't make that. Rather don't stand by the altar. <laughs> don't rush. If you rush, you crash. Think it through. Is she the one? Because if you get there and you say she's the one and you make that vow before God, you are obligated to fulfill the terms of that vow unless there's been a breach of the covenant. And so verse 7 gives us another proverb, second proverb. And he says, For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity. But fear God. But fear God. And I'm going to conclude around here. But fear God. The main idea between verses 1 and chapter 7 is that we fear God. God and Solomon is telling us our worship is meaningless apart from the fear of God. It's vanity. 
There's no point to it. If you worship a God, you don't fear. In Genesis chapter 22, the first time the fear of the Lord was referenced, it was when Abraham set out to obey God's command. When God commanded him and said, take your only son and sacrifice him. The Bible says that when, when the angel stopped him, as he was about to slay his son, the angel said these words, For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son. And what do we see here? We see that the fear of God is demonstrated in Abraham's obedience to the Lord. The fear of God is seen and demonstrated in our lives through obedience. Deuteronomy 10 verse 12 to 11 says, So now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? To fear Him, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve Him, and to keep His command commandments. All these are an expression of a fear for the Lord. In Acts chapter 9, we have a New Testament reference to the fear of the Lord where the Bible says that when Saul was converted the entire church of Judea Galilee and Samaria the Bible says they were at peace and they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and they grew and were multiplied when men and women no longer fear God they transgress his word without hesitation without hesitation when there's no fear of God it, before our eyes and in our hearts we transgress and violate his word without second thoughts and what I've seen constantly is that when we lack a fear of God we always manufacture a gospel of convenience yeah. We manufacture Jesus to our own liking. We set the terms for our worship. But Jesus made it crystal clear. And when you serve God, you serve Him on His terms. Not on your terms. Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. These are the terms. Not your world, but my world. Can we stand? Everyone's eyes closed.